Good evening, everyone. This is Mike Barsanti. I'm the Edwin Wolf II Director of the Library Company. Um, I'd like to welcome you to tonight's fireside chat with Professor, Professor Crystal Webster. Um, we, uh, this is beginning perhaps a little more abruptly than you might be used to. The elegant uh, signage and music that you might be used to at the beginning of our fireside chats. Um, we do not have tonight our uh, Deja Brock, who helps to run these programs, is on vacation, and Deja is the one who makes it all happen. So you're just getting a cold open with me and Crystal. Um, but we're very glad you're here, and we're really looking forward to tonight's presentation from Professor Webster. Um, I'd like to introduce her in a moment. Before I do, let me just give you a quick um, preview of what's coming up. Uh, next week, we're going our fireside chat next Thursday night on July 22nd is going to be Cordelia Francis Biddle talking about Biddle, Jackson, and a nation in turmoil. Um, that will be the same time, same place, same faces. Uh, Crystal maybe will be in attendance. Um, and then on July 29th, in two weeks, we're going to have Liberty Displaying the Arts and Sciences uh, talk about our uh, famous painting by Samuel Jennings. Um, the pr presentation will be by Emily Casey from St. Mary's College in Maryland. In between those, on, the, on July 20th next week, we're having a members event. Um, uh, it is free for members. There's a small fee for non-members. That's called Petticoats, Patriots, and Punch. This is a series of programs we've been doing that are sort of historical talks tied with cocktails. Uh, so if you want more details on that, that's going to be next Tuesday at seven o'clock. You can uh, look, check it out on our website. Um, but for tonight, tonight we have Professor Crystal Webster, who's talking about her book called Beyond the Boundaries of Childhood, African-American Children in the Antebellum North. Uh, Professor Webster is a familiar face to us at the library company as one of our former fellows. Um, and one of the participants, I believe, in our Mellon Scholars Program a number of years ago. Um, uh, Professor Webster is a historian of race, gender, and childhood in early America. She is assistant professor of history at the University of British Columbia, which is a new move. Uh, Crystal had been at UT Austin, and as we were just chatting before we started about her move up to Vancouver which is supposed to be a cooler place to be, but has not been lately, I suppose. Um, Webster received her PhD from the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Her dissertation received awards from the National Council for Black Studies and Association for Black Women Historians and received funding from the American Antiquarian Society, the Massachusetts Historical Society and the Library Company of Philadelphia. Her first book, Beyond the Boundaries of Childhood, um, is newly published with UNC Press. She recently completed a research fellowship in Yale's Gilder Learman Study for the Society of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. And for her next book, which um, is titled Criminalizing Freedom, African-Americans in the Making of Criminal Reform in Early America. Additionally, her writing has been featured in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and USA Today. And we are very, very glad to have her here today to talk about her book. With that last bit of instruction, let me hand it over to you, Professor Webster. Thank you so much for that introduction and thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here to have this discussion today. So I am joining you from Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm really grateful to be a guest on this land. And I think it's really important to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm coming from the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. I also want to acknowledge how important this is to name right now in this moment as we're reckoning with difficult histories and products of white supremacy in light of attacks on history and critical race theory and black and indigenous life. And so for those who are interested in learning more about the places that they live and work, you can visit native-land.ca or if you're and or if you're interested in supporting and getting involved in anti-racist activism, I urge you to look at the Black Lives Matter Global Network. 
it's such an honor, as I said, to be here. Um, I was a fellow at the library company and the time that I spent there really helped to inspire this project and ended up being the main focus of my book. And so I'm really grateful to have the generous support that I had from the library company, as well as the program in African-American history. And I wanna thank Dr. Eric Armstrong Dunbar who encouraged me to apply to the long-term dissertation fellowship. So beyond the boundaries of childhood is a social history of black children in the US North. And it focuses from the period of the 1780s to the Civil War. And the reason that it's situated in the North, um, mainly in cities of Boston, Philadelphia, and New York, is because of the very fraught transition from slavery to freedom that African-American children experienced in the region. And so I wanna take a couple minutes to explain that process before I get into um, some of the details of the book and focus on some of the children that I wanna talk about today. So there were a couple different versions of emancipation in the antebellum North, and the most common was gradual emancipation. And indeed, Pennsylvania was the first to begin this process of emancipating its enslaved populations with the gradual emancipation law of 1780. And this freed children born of enslaved parents once they aged into maturity or reached age 28. And following that, other regions and states issued similar versions of emancipation, including Rhode Island and Connecticut, which instituted gradual emancipation acts in 1784 and New York, which also emancipated its enslaved population by age for children who reached age 25 for women and then 28 for men. New Jersey was the last to do this process of gradual emancipation and did so for children who were also indentured until they turned 21 for women and then 25 for men. So you can see there's this direct relationship between age and emancipation that happens in the antebellum North. And Massachusetts was actually the only state to issue full emancipation of its enslaved populations in 1783. So I was really interested in this process, especially after being at the library company and being exposed to the very rich records that, the, that are in the archives there. And I wanted to write a book that took up this question of what does this process of emancipation look like, but from the perspective of children who are the ones that it really depends upon and is defined around. So I was really interested in how we could do a child-centered history of the process of emancipation in the North. And what was very important for me in this book to think about was how Black children's labor was especially important in this process because Black children were indentured um, as the process of gradual emancipation was, um, was rolled out. And they were indentured and not fully emancipated. And this indenture sometimes extended beyond um, adulthood and also extended beyond the 13th amendment. So beyond when we kind of think about slavery really ending even in the entirety of the US. So in this ways, I wanted to look at the intersections of age and race and how this changes not only how we think about um, slavery and emancipation, but also how we think about childhood and adulthood because black children were almost seen outside of what children or who was category, categorized as a child and kind of at the same time suspended between slavery and freedom. So they therefore didn't fit within either category neatly. So, while scholars have looked at this history of emancipation, again, mine was, my book was one of the first to do from a child-centered perspective. And so I'm really invested in imagining the world of the antebellum North from the eyes of children. And in doing this, I came up with a few archival challenges um, and came up with some 
some challenges just as a scholar, um, as a scholar who's writing about children in general. Um, I really had to resist the impulse to focus on Black children growing up to adults or who they grew up to be, but really focus and highlight and find meaning in children's childhoods um, and their actions, actions that might have been seen as immature or um, apolitical, I argue were political for the reasons that they were claiming childhood and argue that in claiming childhood, they're in a sense claiming freedom. So those are some of the main, um, main takeaways from the book. So just to give you a bit of background for the kinds of conditions of Black childhood in the North, um, even if they were free in pretty much all areas of life, they experienced racial discrimination and exclusion. And in my book, I really wanted to touch on many of those areas. So I focus on their labor, Black children's play, their institutionalization in the first places that admitted and recognized Black children, their schooling and in the activism of their parents. And today what I want to focus on are Black children's experiences inside many of the institutions um, that first gave um, physical and social recognition for Black children. And indeed, many of these were in Philadelphia. So these institutions include orphanages and juvenile reformatories. So I'll talk about those today um, and also be focusing on the kind of physical buildings, how Black children occupied and navigated these spaces, and also how these buildings and physical renderings of Black childhood made them vulnerable to confinement and violence and attacks. Black children who occupied physical spaces of orphanages and reformatories were cared for by adults who were engaged in larger social and political movements during this time. And some of these movements include Black activism led by the Black community, um, the prison reform movement, the abolitionist movement, and emerging movements concerned with, ch with children in general, um, which become child welfare movements. And the history of these spaces, these orphanages and houses of refuge and reformatories really show how Black children gradually gained salience within each of these movements. Many of them took place in New York and Philadelphia. And these were in fact, the first cities that allowed for black children to be admitted to early orphanages. So the few that I'm going to talk about today are Philadelphia's Shelter for Colored Orphans, which is depicted here. And this image actually makes its way to the cover of my book and it becomes the, um, eventual site of the Shelter for Colored Orphans, as well as New York's Colored Orphan Asylum and um, the Philadelphia um, Home for Destitute Children. All of these are the first of their kind um, and were primarily led by charitable white women who founded orphanages um, and then by criminal reformers who founded juvenile reformatories and all of these um, movements to institutionalize black children were all on the heels of gradual emancipation and part of these social movements um, emerging influence. And in focusing on some of the most vulnerable children, these movements anticipated the what becomes the 19th century and 20th centuries, um, a newly atten new attention to the social welfare and well-being of children. In taking in black children, they produced kinds of new kinds of visions of what black children could and couldn't do. And then they produced very physical um, renditions of that in um, the physical construction of these buildings. Yet at the same time, 
many of the people who were involved in the um, creation of some of these early institutions who were white administrators who were also involved in these other movements clashed with the emergent free black communities insistence on self-determination and its own independent institution building. So as a result, black children were caught between conflicting ideas of um, social welfare and proper care and parenting, and they often suffered as a result. Many of these had short-term benefits for African-American children in the ways that they formalized black childhood um, in social and um, legal terms in some cases, um, but they were also often coercive and forced African-American children and parents into dependent relationships with white um, benefactors. And this process in turn institutionalized or systematized black childhood as transgressive. I also wanna focus on how the institutions admissions processes and their treatment of black children once they were inside in particular in relationship to their health um, and the social and physical composition of these spaces promoted very particular visions of childhood for black children. So in, in other words, they erected very physical um, internal boundaries in which to teach and reform, but ultimately also to control black children and their childhoods. And these boundaries often reproduced racial and class and gendered hierarchies. But I also wanna highlight that black children themselves often resisted this process, right? And that they expressed autonomy in doing so by moving in and out of these institutions, um, trying to flee certain, certain spaces that they did not feel safe, um, and sometimes leaving the kind of institutionalization altogether. This spatial negotiation between adults and children, as well as between white reformers and the free black community, sometimes very literally reframed the walls of these institutions. And then what I argue in my book is that they reframed the project of black childhood itself. So I like to focus on some of the individual children who were in these spaces, beginning with Stephen Ricks. Stephen Ricks was one of the first children admitted to the Philadelphia Shelter for Colored Orphans. And from the moment he arrived, he really captivated um, the adults around him. Many of the administrators and teachers at the orphanage commented, reflected on, and memorialized Stephen. He was incredibly intelligent, and um, they spoke about his um, intellectual capacity when he was only six years old. But Stephen Ricks died only one and a half years after he arrived at the Philadelphia Shelter for Colored Orphans. And he was one of many children who died at disproportionate numbers inside the orphanage. And this was often due to the spread of disease and also substandard medical care that they received. Inside these orphanages, black children often experienced overcrowding and overpopulation, which then could produce numerous issues that further aggravated and propelled um, administrators searches for better places for them to take refuge in. The spread of disease and illness was a constant threat for African Americans and this was even further aggravated for orphan populations. The New York Colored Orphan Asylum also recognized that there was an issue with overcrowding and spread of disease and in 1840 they documented that the cause of disease was a great concern and one that prompted a search for larger accommodations. In many of these orphanages, they also countered the issue of 
overpopulation and illness by removing children who were at an increased risk of disease and sending them to um, more rural settings. And they argued that this was a way of healing the children of these diseases. Um, but this also removed them from their families and their loved ones and also um, created tension within the Black community because they were often indentured to these rural environments. Stephen Ricks was memorialized by the Philadelphia Shelter for Colored Orphans in a public report published by the orphanage, but in a way that almost justified and rationalized his death. They described how he bravely faced his death and his illness without fear, and that he actually preferred to stay inside and to rest instead of to play um, with all the other children while he was suffering from his illness. Stephen's story and um, Stephen's story is not very unique to many of the children. He not only in that he fell ill at the orphanage, but also that he was not an orphan in the typical sense. Um, he had a living relative. His mother, Lucinda Ricks, um, was documented by the institution and actually was able to take one of the children, one of Stephen's brothers, out of the orphanage at a, at a later point. Indeed, many other children had living relatives, and sometimes parents use these orphanages as a kind of temporary childcare while they themselves manage the transition from slavery to freedom and attempted to gain economic stability. And in this way, Northern orphanages, like the Philadelphia Shelter for Colored Children, provided protection and care for Black children, but at the same time, as Stephen's case illustrates, they were also sites of overcrowding and disease, um, and indeed, sometimes sites of violence. Black children at the Philadelphia Shelter for Colored Orphans and the New York Orphan Asylum experienced not only the violence of illness and disease, but also physical violence at the hands of white rioters. Both orphanages, Philadelphia Shelter and the New York Colored Orphanage were victims of white racist mobs who attacked the children and the buildings during incidents of racial terror. During the 1838 burning of Pennsylvania Hall in Philadelphia and at the 1861 New York draft riots, black children were not just passive or unintended victims, but were actively sought out um, as um, potential, um, potential victims of white rage and violence in these spaces because they were spaces that were visible renditions of newly acquired um, protection for Black children. So my book tries to imagine these events, again, from the perspective of, a ch of children, which amplifies both their impact and their intention behind the terror um, and racial violence. So the children at the Shelter for Colored Orphans in Philadelphia experienced the burning of Pennsylvania Hall, not as a singular event, but as one that unfolded over multiple days. And you can see this in, in the records of the orphanage. They were aware of the growing riots and violence that permeated their part of the city. And indeed the orphanage was just down the street from Pennsylvania Hall. So they would travel in and out um, following the destruction of the neighboring Pennsylvania Hall and the administrators and teachers reflected on, um, of that, on that feeling of fear and um, the experiences that the children fell victim to. At the time, 36 children resided at the Shelter for Colored Orphans and they shared a room in the home and um, 
were together when the incidents of violence happened with likely with just one um, matron or teacher. On the night of the attack, after the rioters burned Pennsylvania Hall, they turned to the shelter, which again was just blocks away. The children anticipated their arrival and were again aware of the, the kind of constant deluge of physical violence that African-Americans were experiencing in the city, but were nevertheless terrified when mobs of angry whites attacked the institution and set fire to it. The children were rushed out the building and at that moment were forced to face their assailants and flee at the same time. The conduct of the people who were involved in the mob was represented in newspapers at the time. And one even reflected that the rioters were, quote, so utterly contemptible and vile that we can scarcely find words to characterize it. And this language suggests that the attack went even beyond the burning of these physical buildings, but perhaps included physical violence directly, um, violence that directly impacted the children of the orphanage. The fire company managed to save the building, but the psychological violence and the fear of um, the children and those who run, ran the institution encouraged them to find a new location for the orphanage, which they did immediately after. So in this way, the children's access to physical spaces um, in, these, in these orphanages, in these institutions was shaped by racial violence. Even these spaces where black childhood was institutionally recognized, it was also constantly under surveillance and attack. And this is really um, evident when we think about surveillance and control as it relates to black children's uh, criminalization. This becomes more and more closely monitored and an area of, um, of interest uh, for criminal reformers during the antebellum era. And indeed at this moment, juvenile delinquency is a new concept, um, but becomes a way to uh, enforce racially distinct treatment of children. Black children experience a very different, um, very different, um, have very different experiences with juvenile delinquency than white. And we see this at the moment, it's really being defined. New York was the first city to allow African-American children to have entry into um, juvenile reformatories. And the first was the New York House of Refuge, and it allowed Black children entry in 1835. Philadelphia's House of Refuge opened 14 years later, and also later admitted, admitted Black children to a segregated space. Before these institutions allowed for the admission of Black children, Black children were sent to adult prisons, and indeed, even after we still see black children in adult prisons. And similar to reform ideology proposed by orphanages, which um, often advocated for a protection of black children via their separation from their parents, juvenile delinquency reformers advocated for the complete removal of black children from their quote unquote natural environment because they considered these environments to be a destructive influence in the children's path towards rehabilitation. Once they were inside these juvenile reformatories, they experienced racialized treatment, even though they were um, both white children and black children were in the same spaces. So for example, at the Philadelphia, Philadelphia House of Refuge, children were um, categorized based on their age and their behavior. And these distinctions are evident here in this um, 
rendition of the building plans for the departments. The department for colored children was proposed to be substantially smaller, in part due to a proposed smaller population. But prisoner planners also further differentiated African Americans recreation in these spaces based on race. So black children had less space for recreation. Um, and indeed, even though they had smaller buildings because it was proposed that they would be a smaller population, they were represented in these spaces in juvenile reformatories at very disproportionate levels to the population of black children in Philadelphia, for example. The largest of the spaces proposed for the, the colored department of the House of Refuge were playgrounds for boys of the first and second classes. And this classification encompassed or um, referred to the lowest or quote, least delinquent um, behavior of black children. Boys of the third class were only provided an exercising yard, um, not a true space for recreation. And in these spaces, black girls and boys performed gendered labor um, for the prison population and only black boys, not white boys, were indentured to be domestic while white children and boys were indentured to more skilled labors. In these spaces, in the juvenile reformatories, but also in um, orphanages, Black children learn that their behavior and their health had a direct role in their ability to move within out and outside the physical spaces of the institutions. So for example, if they acted in a way that administrators said was um, inappropriate, they could be indentured far away or sent to one of these houses of refuge. And also ill, and feeble or quote unquote disabled children were also removed from these institutions and then sent to almshouses. So in these ways, because these children were moved around, they were categorized as orphans, as destitutes or as criminals in interchangeable ways, sometimes as more than one or sometimes depending on their circumstance or behavior, not based on um, observable fact. For example, in 1857, the Philadelphia Home for Destitute Colored Children sent two children to the Shelter for Colored Orphans. And it also then sent five children to the House of Refuge. And according to the administrators, they ended up doing this because some of the children had quote unquote, lifelong evil habits that required them to have stricter discipline than they were able to enforce. At reformatories, whites granted black children access to physical spaces, like those spaces of play that I just described, only based on their approval of appropriate behavior. So this movement within the physical spaces um, of these institutions created a process of connecting orphanages and schools and reformatories in ways that all worked around the control of, of Black children's behavior. Due to the efforts of the African-American working poor and the institutions and um, Black children themselves, institutions and organizations recognized Black children as new and appropriate subjects for charity. However, in the wake of gradual emancipation, the physical increase of Black children, their physical presence in these cities um, garnered attention in ways that promoted recognition and institutionalization, but also anger and violence. So while Black children enjoyed access to new spaces and institutions, um, 
they also struggled within these spaces to remain healthy and to behave appropriately. And this produced paradoxes of social and spatial recognition alongside confinement. Um, and I characterize this as the metaphysical dilemma of the boundaries of childhood that Black children were forced to traverse. However, Black children nevertheless creatively challenged and reframed these boundaries, seeking freedom in the spaces of confinement, however fugitive, and redefining the nature of childhood as well as the nature of freedom. Thank you very much. So I look forward to taking your questions um, about this project. Thank you, Professor Webster for that. Um, um, and yeah, we'd like to open this up to questions. A couple have come in during the talk. Um, uh, uh, a short question from Carolyn Schimmel, who asks whether a child was considered an orphan when she lost one parent or only if both. Sure, yeah, I can, I can talk a little bit about that. So um, it depended, they could be orphans by the loss of one parent, certainly. But I also came across children who were considered orphans and there were questions about whether or not they even had both parents living. And so I, I say that this depends because I don't think it's used um, consistently, especially when dealing with African-American children and this very new negotiated relationship with the Black community. There were some times when parents attempted to get custody back of their children um, and this was denied or there were um, conflicts over custody of children because of the orphaning process that these institutions took up. And I think that this is a little bit unique to Black children, but also this is the early stages of the orphan movement in the U.S. in general, so things are a little bit less defined. Thank you. Um, another question uh, from Milburn Smith, who asks, um, the New York African free school students included James McCune Smith, Henry Highland Garnett, and Alexander Crummel. Was it more successful than other institutions you studied? And if so, why? That's a great question. Yeah. And I would say that, as I said, because I was so interested in looking at Black children as children, and, um, and I think that there are such excellent books that focus on some of these individuals that grew up. I really wanted to consider which were successful for the children while they were children, um, not necessarily which were successful for the children who um, became prolific adults. And so when you look at it that way, it's a little bit trickier to, to, kind, of, um, to kind of find the same level of success stories when you see um, many layers of suffering for, for Black children as children in these spaces. And I think that this is a bit of a product of um, how we think about childhood in general, that sometimes we think, well, if children can kind of go through this difficult stage, they'll grow up eventually and it'll be okay. But um, I think because of so many of the spaces that I was looking at, there was um, so much, um, so many difficult moments for me. It was it was hard to see which ones were successful. So that's kind of my um, my my shorter answer. I think in terms of thinking about historically which were more successful at the time or which would have been categorized as successful at the time, I think that it would be spaces where um, the Black community had more autonomy um, and more influence in the relationships between the um, those running the institutions, the Black children themselves. And I would say from, from my book and my experience, um, some of those spaces were um, the probably 
probably the schools in Boston that I write about um, once African-Americans become more directly involved, which then spur um, much of the desegregation movements in Boston. Um, and many of the institutions that come at the in the wake of the kind of rise of Black abolitionism, um, which comes um, around the mid 19th century. I think that those spaces, um, if you're thinking about success stories at the time, become spaces that even um, become institutions that are still around today, for example, um, spaces that African-Americans were able to have um, more influence and autonomy in. Thank you. Um, this question is from Sandra Jackson Apuku. She asks, um, did your research disclose any information on the condition of black children during the Dutch period? And was Sojourner Truth, Isabella Baumfrey's childhood in any way emblematic of this condition? Yeah, absolutely. So my research um, in, into that area of study would comes through with Sojourner Truth. She does um, play an important role in my book, especially in the fifth chapter, which is on um, Black parents' activism on behalf of their children. And Sojourner Truth has a really interesting story about um, both about her childhood growing up, which I do include a bit in the book, um, but also about her struggle to um, regain not custody but to get her get her son back who is sold into slavery in Alabama and and it's in some ways a success story but it's also bittersweet and so for um for that period Sojourner Truth is is kind of represented or represent represents that period in my book um but generally speaking it doesn't go um it doesn't go that early because I'm really interested in um, or was really inspired to start at gradual emancipation of work my way forward, um, looking at that process from the perspective of children. But if you're, yeah, if you're interested in Sojourner Truth, you would definitely find her in my book. Um, if you if you don't mind, um, uh, Professor Webster, I, I was wondering something while you were talking you know, there have been a number of books published about the many incidents of the kidnapping of Black children in New York and in Philadelphia in the, in the 19th century, um, uh, and, and, you know, especially subsequent to the Fugitive Slave Act. And, and um, are there incidents that you have found of children being kidnapped from these orphanages, or were they ways of protecting uh, vulnerable children from that kind of experience, or you know, do you, do those sort of issues overlap in your research? They do, yes. So um, they overlap in that the um, administrators do comment on um, the Fugitive Slave Act and um, the Civil War by remarking on new populations of children in the orphanage. So. They might have um, fugitive enslaved children that they document as fugitive. And um, what happens with them, what I have found or what I found in the book, but I think warrants some more study, is that sometimes they are the ones that are moved around even more. I wonder if that's a strategy of protection. I took it more as. Um, as a um, as just kind of not knowing what, where to place them or what to do with them. Um, but I didn't find instances of them documenting children being kidnapped. I, I wonder if um, if that happened and they were not documenting it, but I hope not. I hope it, it didn't happen. Um, but as I said, what I found um, to be most disturbing were the instances where children were um, represented in adult prisons. And there um, I found records of um, fugitives or people who were perhaps 
imprisoned because they had escaped slavery, which I thought was very um, disturbing. And that actually led to um, my next book's project, which is to look at um, this phenomenon of Black children in prisons, but also generally the um, this early period of criminal reform and why Black people are imprisoned at such large numbers. So there will be certainly some intersections there yeah. also for looking at fugitive slavery. I mean, it's not hard to imagine that these, you know, vulnerable kids would be, you know, could be prey to people who might try to adopt them or get possession of them or just make some kind of arrangement with the people running the orphanage to have them be taken, you know, it's and that that could be papered over in the records in a way that might be very hard to trace. Absolutely. That's such a great point. And um, indeed, we do know that enslavers in the North um, sold children into slavery instead of emancipating them at this very moment, because that was part of the process of a, grand, a gradual emancipation that they're supposed to go through this indenturing and then be emancipated. So we do know that. Um, so I think you're right. I think that also would be a really interesting project to try to trace where are these, where are these children being indentured and is there a connection there? Yeah, it just seems like there's a possibility for trafficking that you know is is um, I mean no no less terrifying than any of the other circumstances surrounding them, but um, um, uh, well, um, I uh, one of the questions that came in while you were talking uh, was asking about how your book can be found and bought, and um, I did just paste in a link to Amazon and to the UNC Press webpage. Um, and I hope all of you who have enjoyed this talk tonight will um, pursue those options. Ooh, looks like there's another question. Um, this one from uh, Nancy Kirby, who asks, were there differences in the numbers of boys and girls in the orphanages? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, at different times, yes, there were there were differences in the number of boys and girls. Um, so sometimes there were differences in the number of boys and girls skewing sl slightly to boys. And I think the skew is probably having to do with girls being kept home to perform domestic labor in the cases where children would or where parents would try to use these spaces as um, childcare for boys or for, for children in general. Um, and then I, I was also going to mention that these institutions wrote more about these boys in their published reports. Um, they, they elaborated more on boys' experiences. I certainly noticed that as a researcher, that many of the stories I was getting about what children's life was like were about boys. And because of that, my book kind of does it, it is critical about gender, it's critical about this issue, but skews a bit more to black boyhood because of that, that different representation of, of what um, their experiences were like. And that's certainly gendered and certainly because these administrators were trying to show that they were having this, this positive impact on black children's lives in a way that um, these black children who had the most potential to grow up to be um, uh, to be productive members of society were also um, gendered at the time to be boys who would grow up to be men. Thank you. Uh, we actually have two questions that have come in. Um, one is from Gerald Johnson. Um, he asks, I'm curious about orphan children who served apprenticeships that were outside of indenture. Do you have any thoughts on how black orphan children could be placed in apprenticeships? Yeah, so by and large, most of the children that were in these orphanages were um, indentured to rural labor or to domestic labor to perform unskilled um, work at the time. Um, and the only um, consistent time that I saw Black children performing 
skilled labor was in New York in the chimney sweep industry, which is a very fascinating part of my book where you actually do see a level of um, a level of autonomy between black managers and black children and a space that they really claim for their own and have a kind of dominance in, um, which I find to be very fascinating. But by and large, most of these children were indentured to work on a farm or to um, work inside a home and to be domestics. Um, and we have another question, or not another question, but we have a question from Dee Andrews. Um, who notes um, in the image of the Philadelphia House of Refuge, it looks as if boys get schooling and girls get sewing. Was there perhaps a greater gender divide there than among white children at the time? That's a great question. There actually is the same gender divide between black children and white children in terms of what opportunities the boys get um, for the kind of work and schooling they are having at these um, juvenile reformatories. The only gender dif or the only or one of the main racial differences, like I mentioned, was in what happens when they're indentured um, from these institutions. But by and large, the, the overall construction of the space is the same. It's just that they get less space for um, the black children. Um, and yeah, and the black boys can also do the domestic labor that the girls did as well. Well, thank you again. Um, and again, I would encourage you to, anyone here to um, look up uh, Professor Webster's book and look ahead to her next book. And we hope you will come and talk to us about your new book when, uh, when it's ready. And uh, certainly we wish you well at your, in your new role up in, up in Canada there. Um, and I hope that despite being so far away that we might get to see you in Philadelphia again sometime soon. Um, thank all of you for attending and uh, have a good evening. And we hope to see you at another one of these talks or even in person at the library company sometime soon. Thanks Thank again. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you and have a great night. Thank you.